Good evening. So, um, I hear an echo. <laughs> um, so tonight's talk is called uh, um, Walking Through Your Practice. And um, so when I was in Burma uh, in 2004, I practiced there for about six weeks, and uh, Sayadaw Lakana, who's one of the five primary um, lineage holders of Mahasi Sayadaw, uh, gave a three-hour discourse on walking meditation. So get ready. <laughs> Roll up your sleeves. Um, We'll see. It won't be that long. But I actually wanted to do an entire Dharma talk on walking meditation. Because in the culture of our retreats, it kind of sometimes feels like a secondary practice. And I don't know if you have this sense of... um, that it's not as important as the sitting practice. And all the examples that we get in the Dharma talks are about when you sit. And so, you know, it it sort of was a stretch for me and and an interest for me to um, really think about liberation through the walking practice. And we know that, you know, the walking practice is not just about taking a walk, even though that's often what we do to get relief from the sitting or the intensity of, of what's happening in the sitting practice. That, um, you know, that sometimes it just feels like a waste of time, that the real practice is about sitting. And this is actually, you know... Um, Uh, walking is actually not that supported in the general culture. So this is a a small passage from the New York Times, a writer talking about the um, dynamic of just walking or the activity of just walking. How sluggish locomotion is compared with the speed at which mind absorbs new images and information. The brain strains at the body's tether, seethes for new scenery, new stimulation, bridles at the slow feet below. Look at that tree with such a lovely orange leaf, how pretty it is. A minute later, the same tree, the same leaves. Walking is space travel on a donkey. it actually isn't really given that much priority or, or importance, even you know, in the external culture. So it's a great time to go to the bathroom, right? You, know, you go to the bathroom, get a cup of tea, and all of a sudden there's only 30 minutes left in the walking period. Or sometimes we can go in the opposite direction in terms of investing too much in the walking practice, of um, almost being competitive. 
Have you ever been in a room in which you can tell by the giggles that, you know, seeing who's walking the slowest? Can I be that person to show uh, that I'm the best, you know, walking meditator? And really, this next story is to show this is such a human reaction, that this is not something to be ashamed of, but to notice. So this is um, from the autobiography of Ajahn Lee Damodaro, who's one of the, he's one of the meditation masters that, that, that brought practice into um, 20th century Thai culture. One night when the moon was bright, I made an agreement with another monk that we'd go without sleep and do sitting and walking meditation. I told my friend, let's see who's better at doing sitting and walking meditation. (laughs) So we agreed. When I do walking, you'll do sitting. When I do sitting, you'll do walking. Let's see who lasts longer. When it came my turn to do walking meditation, my friend went to sit in the hut next to the path. Not too long afterwards, I heard a loud thud coming from inside the hut. Sure enough, there he was, lying flat on his back with his folded legs sticking up in the air. He had simply fallen backwards and gone to sleep. I was practically asleep myself, but I kept going out of the simple desire to win. I felt embarrassed for my friend's sake. I'd hate to be in his place, I thought. But at the same time, I was pleased that I won. All of these things serve to teach me a lesson. This is what happens when people aren't true to what they do. So, you know, it's, it's really not, not something to judge yourself by, but to learn from. This is how the mind works even in the evolution of, of this highly realized being. That they too went through some form of delusion and saw the other side of it, saw the clarity that was, that was, that was, um, that was available And it makes our journey, our own path, for me at least, it makes it that much more real. I could feel that humanity in that story. So the Buddha in the Majjhima Nikaya says, Furthermore, when walking, the, um, the noble one discerns, I am walking. When standing, they discern, I am standing. When sitting, they discern, I am sitting. When lying down, they discern, I am lying down. This is the four postures that we were talking about in the first foundation. However their body is disposed, that is how they discern it. And as they remain thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, any memories and resolves related to the householder life are abandoned. And with their abandoning, their mind gathers and settles inward grows unified and centered. And this is how the noble one develops mindfulness immersed in the body. So that grows unified and centered 
is the definition of concentration. Is concentration is defined as the unification, bringing together all the fragments, all the distractions, all of the pieces, and unifying it in the state of concentration. But what actually interests me about this passage for this subject is that he did not put sitting practice first. I find that to be really interesting because the Buddha was very pithy and succinct. He did not say anything extra. And so there's some meaning for me that he actually put walking practice first in that list. So it's woven into this, these foundations of mindfulness, the foundation of the body that we began with this morning. So what is this body that ambulates? Are you aware of the 26 bones in each foot as you walk? Or the 33 joints? It's the, it's, the, it's the densest collection of joints, ligaments, and muscles in, in the body. How, are, how aware are we of this incredibly rare gift in, in the whole panoply of, of living beings to be able to walk upright? So the average physically able person takes about eight to 10,000 steps a day. That's about 1,600 miles a year. I'm 56. That's 90,000 miles. <laughs> you can calculate you know, your own mileage. But it's several circumferences of the earth. That's pretty amazing how much we've walked and how aware are we in that particular journey. How aware are you that you've actually traveled that far? Instead, we do what the conditioned mind does, which we've been talking about, Mio and and Arena and I, that we push away things that we don't like. We want things that we do like and don't pay attention to things that are uninteresting. And so we're not actually with the walking itself. So we think that this walking should be more interesting, or I hope that no one's at the top of that hill because I want it for myself when I get up there. I want the view. Or what else can I do during this period that would, you know, be more worthwhile? Or when is the bell going to ring? The bell ringer is not doing their job. I have to write a note to Quilly and, you know, all of this, all of this is not actually living what is in front of us, which is the walking. We're actually living the thought. And this is where our thinking begins to create reality, not the content of the thought itself, but the thinking process itself becomes our reality as opposed to what is actually showing up. Thich Nhat Hanh writes, 
this beautiful passage about not taking this amazing activity of walking for granted. If we're really engaged in mindfulness while walking, then we'll consider the act of each step we take as infinite wonder. And a joy will open in our hearts like a flower, enabling us to enter the world of reality. I like to walk alone on country paths, putting each foot down on the earth with mindfulness, knowing that I walk on this wondrous earth. In such moments, existence is miraculous and mysterious. People usually consider walking on water or in thin air a miracle. But I think the real miracle is not to walk either on water or thin air, but to walk on earth. Every day, we're engaged in a miracle we don't even recognize. And we begin just by noticing the details of the experience of walking. So what are the supports for walking practice? It's not unsimilar to the practice around sitting. It's actually hard, it's harder to do it alone, even though you may want to find your isolated um, spot, you know, in the woods. So the, the act of walking in community is actually quite transformative. Uh, Arena, I think on the first night, was talking about drafting in, in people's practice. You can draft in people's walking practice. So there's this story from Ajahn Man, who um, uh, again was this forest ascetic that was one of the teachers of Ajahn Chah, who is one of the teachers of a lot of our Western teachers, including those um, at Spirit Rock. And I just say this just to create the lineage. Um, but Ajaman was, was walking on a ridge over a village in Thailand, and um, he was walking, he was doing the same instructions that, that were offered to you, walking back and forth, or, you know, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. And so the villagers came up and asked him, uh, Ajahn, or teacher, um, what are you looking for? And he said, freedom. <laughs> and by the end of the week, he had the whole village walking back and forth on the, on, the, on, the, on the ridge. And I don't know if um, you've seen this in the sanghas or in the day-longs or in the retreats that, that you do, but um, at East Bay Meditation Center, we're in right in the middle of downtown Oakland in this busy street on Broadway, right near the, the Paramount Theater. And so when we do day-longs, our spaces, I mean our spaces, maybe one-third of this room, so there's no space to do walking meditation inside. And so we do it on the sidewalk. We do it, you know, in the street. And so some of you know this. You're, you're walking and you're, you're being mindful. Meanwhile, the whole world is going by you, right? <laughs> Except on that block, because everybody slows down, even the cars. <laughs> and then they speed up again. But for that moment in time, 
there's some mindfulness. That's, you know, when, when the stone drops into the pool and begins to radiate out, you actually see the impact on what creating peace can look like. This is a piece of creating community of the practice of Sangha, of doing it together. And just another comment about, you know, how sometimes it's not so interesting or not so, not, it's kind of boring. I like this quote from Andy Warhol, um, uh, whom I don't think was a Dharma practitioner. <laughs> but he was a, you know, he's that, um, uh, I don't even know what he was that pop artist that painted the repetition of the Campbell soup cans or, or Jackie Onassis or um, Elizabeth Taylor you know the repetition of, uh, of the images the same images and he says I've been quoted a lot as saying I like boring things but that doesn't mean that I'm bored by them Because the more you look at the exact same thing, the more the meaning goes away and the better and the emptier you feel. That sounds really Zen to me. (laughs) So the Buddha spoke of five benefits of walking meditation. He said that it develops physical endurance, you know, the, the stamina and the endurance to, um, to support your sitting practice and your concentration practice. It helps improve effort, which is part of the Eightfold Path, which I'm going to be talking about. It's good for the overall health of the body. And it's particularly good for digestion after a meal. So um, some of the Burmese teachers um, teach that after every meal you should walk at least 50 steps. And that the last benefit of um, walking meditation is that uh, it, um, the concentration that is created from it lasts a long time. So that the concentrated, as, as the mind is unified, it's a concentration that you can bring into your sitting practice. And the benefit that underlies all these benefits are the possibility of these moments of freedom. That the pa- and the path towards freedom is the Eightfold Path which is part of the Four Noble Truths. So very quickly for those of you who are relatively new to the Dharma, the, the, the Four Noble Truths, one of the core teachings is that there's the first noble truth that there's suffering in the world. And there's the second noble truth that there, there is a cause of suffering and that, that that cause is craving or attachment. And that the third noble truth is that there's an end to suffering. And the fourth noble truth is that the end of suffering is caused by the Eightfold Path. And so 
if walking meditation leads to freedom, I want to talk about walking meditation through the Eightfold Path. And so I just want to start with the meditation factors because that's actually what we're doing in this retreat. And starting with wise effort. And so walking meditation actually, um, because it takes energy, it can balance the drowsiness that often accompanies the sitting practice. You can use it to um, uh, create energy and, and, and so that when you do your walking practice and come back into the sitting practice, you can be a little bit more alert. Also, when there's too much restlessness in the sitting practice, you can use the walking practice to discharge energy. Sometimes, you know, um, when, when someone's body and mind, because they're so related, is so agitated, uh, the invitation will, instead of the traditional 18 to 20 steps back and forth, maybe you'll take the length all the way down to the highway and back and see how that impacts your, your sitting practice. Wise effort is also um, um, part of this continuity of practice, that noticing how the, the walking and the sitting practice are seamless, that you're that your mindfulness is actually, from the sitting, actually moves into the walking as soon as the bell rings. Following each movement through, you know, the touch of the door, the, the pressure on the door, possibly going to the bathroom, getting a cup of tea, and then going into your, your path. So try to make it interesting. Try to make, try to see if there's some aspect of curiosity that's available to you. That aspect of investigation and curiosity is one of the factors of awakening. It's really hard to be mindful of something you're totally bored with. So knowing that, see if you can make the, make the, the walking practice itself interesting. You know, walk backwards if you have to. But do something that actually is outside, um, maybe slightly outside your box to see what happens. So wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration are the meditation factors. Wise mindfulness, mindfulness is always wise, especially when walking. So this is a chronicle article last year. On the day of the collision last month, visibility was good. The sidewalk was not under repair. And as she walked, Tiffany Briggs, 25, was talking to her grandmother on the cell phone, lost in conversation. Very lost. I ran into a truck, Miss Briggs said. It was parked in the driveway. How many of us how many of us could that be in terms of how, how mindful we are when we actually walk? 
So noticing the lifting, the moving, the placing, the touching, the pressing, their methods of counting. Mio was talking about technology around, uh, around different methods. Feeling the walk from the inside out. Noticing the turn, the transitions in, in the walking path. So you walk across a length and noticing the turn because we usually lose it. But the metaphor is not to, you know, like be a zombie when you're walking in the world. The metaphor is how many transitions in our life do we not pay attention to? That we actually want to get to the end point or the outcome if we're looking for a job or an apartment or a relationship or whatever it is. We're actually not that interested in the process because we're so attached to getting to the outcome. Meanwhile, it's the process that is being lived. It's the walk that's being lived. Concentration, wise concentration, walking is really fundamental to develop a, a concentrated practice. The object of your mindfulness in, your, in, your, um, in the development of concentration is not that important. So whether it's sitting, walking, eating, taking a shower, putting on your clothes, that is the meditation that we've been talking about over and over again. And as we say, concentration is the unification of mind. Because the mind is usually fragmented. You know, we're multitasking on exponential levels in this life, caring so much. I decide to water my garden. As I turn on the hose in the driveway, I look over my car and decide that it needs washing. As I start to the garage, I notice the mail on the porch table that I brought up from the mailbox earlier. I decide to go through the mail before I wash the car. I lay my car keys on the table, put the junk mail in the garbage can underneath the table, and I notice that the can is full. So I decide to put the bills back on the table and take out the garbage first. But then I think, since I'm going to be near the mailbox when I take out the the garbage, I might as well pay the bills first. I take out my checkbook. I see only one check left. The extra checks are on my desk in the study, so I go inside to the house where I find a can of Coke that I've been drinking. I'm going to look for my checks, but the Coke is getting warm, and I decide to put it in the refrigerator to keep it cold. I head towards the kitchen with the Coke. The vase of flowers on the counter catches my eye, and they need water. I put the Coke on the counter, discover my reading glasses that I've been searching for all morning. I decide to put them back on my desk, but first I'm going to water the flowers. I set the glasses back down on the counter. I fill a container of water and suddenly spot the TV remote, the remote that I've been looking for. I put it back in the den where it belongs, but first I'll water the flowers. I pour some water on the flowers. It spills on the floor. 
So I set the remote back on the table and get some towels. I then head to the hall trying to remember what I was planning to do. (laughs) At the end of the day, the car's not washed, the bills aren't paid, there's a warm can of Coke sitting on the counter, (laughs) the flowers don't have water, I have only one check in my checkbook, I can't find the remote, I can't find my glasses, I don't remember where my car keys are. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out why nothing got done today. I'm really baffled because I know that I was really busy and now I'm really tired. (laughs) I realize this is a serious problem and I'm going to get some help, but first I'm going to check my email. (laughs) There is a benefit to the ability to concentrate. Wise concentration leads to freedom. Wise speech, so we now are getting into um, uh, the aspects of um, the householder life, of, of behavior. So usually wise speech, let's see, where am I? Usually wise speech is about communication. What does it have to do with walking? So when I was in Thailand, um, one of the things that the monastic community um, taught me was that walking practice is a way of communicating with the land. And that before any temple is built, people, the monastics and the lay practitioners, do walking meditation over the land because the belief is is that the land purifies the heart and the intentions of the heart purify the land. And there's a way that this feels very indigenous to me. This feels like a process of almost asking for permission to create this sacred land, this sacred use of, of space before they actually engage. And really in the West, I'm perhaps overgeneralizing, but we have a very different relationship to land. And many of us, even if we don't actually, you know, have the resources to own land, there is that sense of ownership of land. And walking practice can actually transform this, this this taking the land for granted. The Indian uh, Native American chief, Crazy Horse, uh, writes, one does not sell the earth upon which people walk. Finding a new relationship with, with this land this earth that we live on. So I wanted to talk about how to break the walking meditation down into the four elements, which is part of the uh, reflections on the body, the foundations of mindfulness on the body. 
The four elements are fire, air, earth, and water. Fire is the energy of the heat in the muscles contracting and releasing. Air is the movement through the space itself. So lifting, moving, placing. Earth is the touching on the ground, the solidity of that sensation, that support that is always there. And water is the shifting, the constant shifting of the weight from foot to foot, from heel to toe. So those are the four elements that that are universal. And it's not a particularly Western perspective of looking at it. So it does reorient. It requires practice. But as you explore this for yourself, if you choose, it's an invitation actually to re-experience our relationship to land. Because we don't own land. We don't use land. We don't work on the land. We don't even exploit land. We are land. We do not walk on the earth. We are earth that walks. Feel the organicity. Feel the connection to the earth in this way is the invitation of walking meditation. We are the elements placed in motion. And we begin to see how small this small self is, these ideas. And it's much, it's much different than the broader perspective that we refer to when we use the word life with a capital L. We begin to get out of the way. We get our small selves out of the way and really see how is this life that's being lived. Noticing the nature of how things are, just as they are, without them needing to be any other way. Buddhadasa, who actually was one of the um, Thai masters that was one of the um, um, promoters of socially engaged practice and and, uh, very involved in political social justice movements, uh, was asked once, um, how are Westerners to practice with these um, deep inner wounds and and self-judgments? He said, First, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of loving-kindness, or metta. Then, they should be taken into nature, into the beautiful forests or mountains. They must stay there long enough to realize that they, too, are a part of nature. They must rest there until they, too, can feel harmony with all life and their proper place in the midst of things. Wise action. Wise action is really discerning when to walk and when not to walk. 
So um, there's a sutta about the tuning of a lute. That there's a, there was a monk that was um, striving for enlightenment so hard. It's sort of like Ananda, you know, in that, that story that I told about falling you know, asleep and, and letting go and finally being enlightened. But this monk was, was, was um, striving so much, and he was walking. He was, he was doing walking meditation. And, and so the soles of his feet bled because he basically walked the soles off his feet. And uh, not something that I would suggest here. And, um, and so he went to the Buddha and sort of asked, why am I not enlightened? I'm following your instructions. And, and he said, you know... Um, you have to tune your, your, your practice just like a lute. Too tight, and it's just not going to work. Too loose, it also doesn't work. This is, um, this is very poignant, especially for people who have physical differences or limitations in their, their ability to, to uh, ambulate or move through the world. You know, walking meditation instructions are given with the assumption that everybody can walk. This is not necessarily the case. And so, when is it, when is it beneficial to walk and when is it not? When is it okay just to, you know, get up off your seat or your cushion and then sit down again. And that's your practice. Or, you know, if you need an aid when you, when you are ambulating, when is it okay just to feel the vibration of, of the cane or um, the chair? And I actually am offering these alternate invitations into quote-unquote walking practice because even if, even if you have a full range of motion, eventually all of us will be compromised. All of us will be physically challenged in some way, shape, or form or another. And where is your practice then? How can you make the invitations universal to our experience? George Washington Carver has been quoted saying, how far you go in life depends upon your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in your life, you will have been all of these. What is wise walking practice for you? You know, the invitations, the general invitations are like the schedule. We're trying to reach as many people as possible, but every person's body is different. The invitation into mindfulness is not limited by the traditional guidelines or the invitations because your mindfulness is not limited. There are no limits to your practice. And allow your practice to be that expansive. 
wise livelihood. So I'll just tell a story about walking and um, wise livelihood. As a young 26-year-old African-American man, John Francis witnessed a tanker collision and oil spill in the San Francisco Bay in 1971. It was then that he gave up the use of motorized vehicles and began to walk and to work towards transforming an oil-petroleum enmeshed economy. Several months later, fed up with the arguments with this decision to exclusively walk from people around him, John took a vow of silence. Sounds like what we're doing, right? For 17 years. During that time, he founded Planet Walk, a nonprofit environmental awareness organization, received his BS degree, master's degree, and doctorate in land resources, all during the silence. Francis started speaking again on Earth Day, 1990, and that very next day he was struck by an automobile. He refused to ride in the ambulance, insisting on walking to the hospital instead. For 22 years, he walked 20,000 miles, including treks across the entire United States, much of South America, hoping to inspire others to drop out of the petroleum economy. His walking practice led him into a livelihood which creates less suffering in the world, not just for him, but for so many people. His walking practice transformed him, but not just him. I hope you're still with me in the sense that walking may not be such an interesting thing to talk about, but it doesn't make it any less noble a practice. Wise intention. So intention is the ability to notice the motivation before an action takes place. The act of intending is separate from the action itself. So in the walking practice, the invitation is really to notice the intention to move, the intention to lift, then lifting. The intention to move, then moving. The intention to place, then placing. The intention to shift, then shifting. It may sound so mundane and even, you know, like an artifact from some long gone era. But how many times in your life have you ended up in a situation and said to yourself, how did I get here? It is possible to find out how you got there if you cultivate this practice of intention. Cultivating, just like awareness on the breath, the intention to walk, the intention to be here, the intention towards freedom. And all of this, all of these seven factors of the Eightfold Path, really lead towards wise understanding or wise view. Because this is the ground in which insight arises. 
there was a question, there was a retreat question earlier this week of, of um, how does insight arise? This is how it arises, is through these practices, through creating this landscape of your spiritual practice. We can't predict when insight is arise, will arise. But these practices clear the distracted mind. So, um, um, another blended Zen Vipassana story. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, in a POC retreat in this very room, um, I decided, some of you may have been there, uh, so I decided to do a walking meditation, but in the Zen style called Kinhin. And so we gathered in a circle in the courtyard. In Kinhin, you walk in, in a line, usually in a circle, but in this case, we walked up on the hill um, in a very sort of, uh, with a certain space between us, very mindfully. And we walked up on the hill and we opened up to this brilliant day and the sunshine and did some, some um, mindful movements around yoga, came back to ourselves and then mindfully did the kinhin back down the hill into a circle. And I thought it was a beautiful experience. And uh, one of the practitioners came up to me um, afterwards and said, or asked, so what was your intention behind that exercise? And I sort of shared, you know, um, what I was trying to do. And she said, well, you know, you get a group of people of color together and you sometimes have a different experience. And so what the experience brought up from her, for her was the trail of tears. It was the diaspora of the Middle Passage. It was the lines in the railroads being constructed. And then, so she was sharing with this with me, and of course, um, I was like, oh my God, I was triggering some trauma. So I could feel my own response around um, uh, feeling anxious. And then she said, it changed. And then she's, and, and so she went on to describe, it was different. And there was some freedom. That she wasn't in that place, actually, because she was in the present. It may have associated all of that to her. But then she realized that the association wasn't exactly the reality that was happening. And that was a moment of freedom. You do not know when insight's going to arise. But we have faith verified from our experience that it does. Dr. Martin Luther King said, take the first step in faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step. So Stephen, um, my husband, introduced, has introduced me over and over again to Lady Gaga. And um, 
And she did this brilliant interview on Ellen DeGeneres, one of our other favorite people. And Ellen was interviewing Gaga and um, Lady Gaga was talking about her self-compassion practice and how she feels everybody in the world needs to do this. And she said, this is the point of the story, she said, I can't do it for 15 minutes. I can only do it for five minutes. But that's good enough. And that is good enough. You take that first step. Transformation always takes time, whether it's personal or cultural or social. This is why the Dharma is so much of a support for all of us. The qualities of patience and determination in the, in the paramis. Transformation always takes a lot more time than we would like. And yet, this practice supports us as we're walking step by step. So, about 20 years ago, I came out to my parents, and it was a very—it's been a very long walk with them. My my mother's first reaction when I came out to her um, is that you're going to die. Because in her mind, at that time, she equated gay, queer, whatever, with AIDS. And that was the only connection that she had. And we had to actually walk through that for years. She had to do whatever education that she could, in whatever slow ways that she could. About uh, let's see, is it eight? No, it's nine years ago now. No, eight years ago, 2003, when Stephen and I had our commitment ceremony. She was, like, torn about coming. It was, she didn't want to come, and she did not not want to come. Finally, she showed up. But she looked as if she was going to a funeral because she was dressed in complete gray and black. And I visited her like three days after the ceremony and she proceeded, and it was this brilliant June day. Eric was officiating. And she proceeded to tell me everything that went wrong with that day. And we had to walk through this, you know, relationship that that was so challenging. Last year, um, uh, after um, a young 15-year-old hung himself in Indiana, and after Tyler Clemente suicided off the George Washington Bridge, um, my mom and I were looking at the news, and um, the stories were were on the on the on the those stories were on the screen, and she turned to me, and she said, 
Or she asked, were you ever bullied? And it's not a question ordinarily that I would have answered honestly. Because I just didn't think that she would be available after this history. And yet there was something in her voice that I was aware of. And so I went for it. You know, I just said, well, actually, you know, in seventh grade, blah, 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 and went through a, a, a litany. And, and her response was, why didn't you tell us? We would have done something. The conversation took 10 minutes and it healed 50 years of conditioning. It is never too late. It is never too late to heal. Each of us have gone through immense amounts of suffering in our life whether it was similar or dissimilar. Each of us have walked through that first noble truth. And yet, despite that adversity, look at the beautiful lives that we have created. Look at, look at yourselves coming into this space and the intentions that we have together, there is nothing more beautiful than this. The challenge of suffering is only about survival. The invitation of mindfulness is to live so much more than just that. We are so much more than just our suffering. And our mindfulness practice is the invitation into that freedom. So I hope you know, deeply know, that just by being here, regardless how, of how difficult it's been, regardless of, of the um, blissful states, the difficult states, the sorrow, the anger, the rage, the confusion, the unfamiliarity, even the fear. You're walking through this path each moment with as much kindness and much mindfulness as is possible. That's the best that can happen. And you're doing your practice with so much integrity and so much dedication, because really, if you weren't, you would have left. <laughs> you just wouldn't be here. So really, appreciate yourselves for that. You know, there's this stereotype saying from the Chinese culture that a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And I just want to turn it. I have that <laughs> sense of agency, but um, I just want to turn it and say that each step that you take has a thousand journeys in it.
And so the invitation of mindfulness is to explore all those journeys in each step you take on this retreat. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.